Clementine Barnabet is one of the most infamous serial killers in the history of Louisiana, particularly for someone who may have committed no murders. Her story is a labyrinth of racism, abuse, media sensationalism, horrible murders, and accusations of voodoo. In short, it's uh, quite a ride, and that's where we're going this week, folks. Welcome, 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 y'all, into another episode of the Nonstop Roller Coaster Ride of a Podcast about bad things, killing, missing, hidden. <laughs> I'm the conductor of this train of troubles, your old buddy Brad, which means I have to take responsibility for this episode. It's not bad at all. It was just a tough one to decipher. It took some digging, and y'all know how averse I am to hard work. Before we begin, I want to give credit where credit is due. This story was recommended to me by our lovely listener, Marion. So thank you so much for that kind request, Marion. I warn you that we have covered a case that sounds very similar to this one back in our old Patreon days about the axe murder of New Orleans. But this is a different story. There's parts that kind of feel familiar, but trust me. It's a different story. Besides, this is Marion we're talking about here. She wouldn't ask me to record a story we've already covered before. She's got her life together better than that, unlike me. Um, I do have to give a warning that there is some mention of murders directed towards children. You know, no one likes that. So this is a little more gruesome than our typical episode. Naturally, we're not just going to bathe in the gore because I don't like doing that but I don't want anybody to be surprised. Um, I think, if I remember correctly, we just mention it as a fact and, and leave it at that. But again, that bothers you. Don't be afraid to skip this one. Um, hmm. I got, I got, I got nothing else. So, uh, so I'll, I'll just start if that's okay with, no, you, no, no questions. Okay. All right. Yeah, we'll start. So not a whole heck of a lot is known about Clementine Barnabet's early days. She was born sometime around 1894 in St. Martinsville, Louisiana, to Nina Porter and Raymond Barnabet. She had three brothers. Apparently, Raymond wasn't your typical, you know, good guy. He was more known as the guy that beat his family something fierce, like fierce enough that the neighbors were appalled by what they saw in the early 1900s. So the family, including Clementine, moved from St. Martinville to Lafayette in 1909. And that's about all the certainty we have in this case. Hope you enjoyed this episode. <laughs> now, um, you know, I mean, from this point forward, uh, you could fairly describe this episode as a work of fiction because there's so many conflicting accounts. I don't know what's true. I don't know what's what's a lie. But, you know, I'm an attorney. I've never let the truth stand in the way of, of getting done what I need to get done. And I got it's not going to happen this time. So we're going to soldier on. Now, Clementine, no doubt, would have been a soul that was lost to history. But for the fact she was a brutal serial killer. Maybe. There's debate on this point. Uh, 
a lot of debate on this point. There were all these murders occurring in her area back in 1911 through 1912. And, you know, if we look at the records, Clementine was the only one who was ever punished for any of these murders. But there's a whole lot of questions about this because, you know, she's a poor black woman living in the South. Plus, there's a few indications she might have been suffering from some mental handicaps. And... You know what? Let's we're just gonna do the story and we'll talk about each bit to this mystery as we get to it, all right? What we think we may know is that between 1911 and 1912, at least a dozen African American families were brutally murdered in their homes. Now, interestingly, all of these families lived very close to the Southern Pacific Railroad line that ran between Louisiana and Texas, meaning this is kind of an opportunity sort of murder. You know, you can ride the train to a house, jump off, do your dirty deed, and then ride a train back, all on the cover of night and under the cover of train top, I guess. Uh, many of these tales claim these killings started not long after Clementine showed up in Lafayette, but from the records we do have, it seems like somewhere between 18 months to two years passed before her arriving in Lafayette and these murders beginning. But having said that, it does seem pretty clear all these murders are connected somehow. Like I said, the locations being next to the railroad is pretty good commonality. There's also a fact that an axe was used to commit each crime. And these were family annihilation style murders. Everyone in the house was butchered right down to newborn babes. So these were, I mean, these were awful crimes, horrible. They were bloodbaths. They were nasty. Now, based on his reputation as being an extremely violent man, and based on a tip from a scorned mistress, you can never trust a scorned mistress, okay? Clementine's father, Raymond, was initially questioned about these murders specifically of the Byers and Andrus family. He denied everything, but Clementine, when she was questioned, was like, oh yeah, daddy did it. I mean, she was so quick to point the finger at him. And, you know, let's not forget, like, this dude is known for beating the snot out of his family. So is that shocking? Who knows? But the story Clementine tells is that Raymond left home around 7 o'clock both nights when these murders occurred, and he didn't return home until late that evening. Clementine insisted that when she saw her daddy, he was covered in blood, and his hands and boots even had bits of brains on them. How she would know what brains look like, we don't know, but we're taking our story, all right? Now, surprisingly and kind of shockingly, her brother Zephyrin, awesome name, by the way, really told a similar story, and he even included a recollection that Raymond had boasted about killing the entire Andrus family. You know, both children begged the police to do something with Raymond. They feared for their lives. He was, they were in mortal danger as long as Raymond was a free man. And so, naturally, based upon this and other unrecorded evidence the police allegedly had, Raymond was charged with the seven murders, three from the Byers family and four from the Andrus family. 
These occurred most likely in the summer of 1911, but I couldn't even pin that down. He went to trial in October of 1911, and of course, a jury quickly found him guilty on all charges. But his convictions surprisingly were reversed on appeal because, uh, and I love this, his attorneys successfully argued that Raymond showed up to the trial drunk each and every day to the point that they couldn't help him defend himself. I mean, I was born during the wrong era of, of practicing law. Um, and so this argument worked. While it seems kind of silly and a technicality, there's probably more of a practical reason for the reversal. Because you see, the killings hadn't really stopped while Raymond was in custody. So either we've got to accept that there were multiple murders with the same M.O., or police had the wrong guy. Now, if you're if you're betting money here a hundred years later, knowing what we know about how certain governmental institutions worked in the South during these days, and how the color of your skin was so important to so many different aspects of everyday life, which one of those would you bet on? So he gets his reversal, he gets his new trial, but you know, Raymond's not found innocent by the Court of Appeals here. You know, they just say, no, you're, you're entitled to a new trial. So he's still considered a suspect. So police kept him locked up while they continued their investigation. Even though they kind of, you know, on the side would say, we may have the wrong man here. But, they, you know, that's, that's not going to keep some white police officers from locking up a black man here. Uh, they decided to check Raymond's house in November of 1911 more thoroughly. And when they did, they stumbled across a rather shocking piece of evidence. A bloodied and gore-covered dress hidden in Clementine's room. So then Clementine's brought in for questioning, and she acted as about as psychotic as possible under the circumstances. Like, according to the reports I read... She laughed uncontrollably when details about the murders were brought up, and she claimed with a smile that she didn't know how that dress had gotten into her room. Other reports claim that she pointed her finger again at her dad, saying that he used the dress to clean up from his murder spree. But, you know, based on the fact that this is Clementine's dress, it was hidden in her room, and just how bat-poop crazy she was acting... Police decided that Clementine probably needed to be held on to while this investigation continued. Her brother Zephyrin was also questioned, but he had a rock-solid alibi. But nevertheless, we went ahead and locked him up just in case. Now, we got to talk about the murders for a minute. Um, they are ghastly, and some of the details may not be appropriate for little ears. But unfortunately, I think some of these details are sort of necessary to understand the rest of the story. So I apologize for breaking my rule of making my podcast family-friendly. Um, you know, as mentioned, the murders were committed by an axe, but not in the typical, like, horror movie slasher style. The axe was used to bludgeon the victims to death, so they used the backside of the axe. Uh, and most of the victims died from a cracked skull. Uh, actually, some reports I said... I found said all of the victims died from a cracked skull. 
But what really made these murder scenes so unique were some of the details that were found. Several of the crime scenes had buckets that appeared to have been used to collect the victim's blood. In at least one crime scene, and I was very unclear on if this was just one crime scene or multiple crime scenes, but the children that had been murdered, their fingers had been spread apart and held in that position with pieces of wood. There were also tales that there were either Bible verses written in blood on the walls or Bibles themselves were left open next to some of the bodies. Now, with some of the later murders, after the victims had been killed, their bodies were essentially mutilated. Heads and limbs would be separated and put in different parts of the house. There are many reports which claim one of the newer crime scenes contained a signature, like an actual signature written in blood on the walls that just read, quote, the human five. So we take this signature, combine it with the nature of the crimes and the fact that only black families were being targeted and the elites in the white community all jumped to one conclusion. This must be a voodoo cult of some sort. These weren't murders. The press reported them as human sacrifices once all this was put together. Now, sometime towards the end of uh, 1911 or the beginning of 1912, police discovered another commonality among many of the victims, but again, not all. Many of these victims belonged to an organization known as the Church of Sacrifice. When police dug into this religious organization, they immediately became concerned because it seemed to exist in the shadows. Nobody wanted to talk about it. You know, most folks hadn't heard of it, in fairness, but those who had, they said, we can't talk about that. You're barking up the wrong tree. And, of course, no one would claim to be a member of the congregation. You know, considering we've already got the stink of voodoo attached to this case, this really made police act like a dog looking for a bone. A connection of sorts, and I'm not sure exactly what this connection really was, but they found some evidence allegedly linking the Church of Sacrifice with the Christ Sanctified Holy Church congregation in Lake Charles, Louisiana. So they're thinking we've got this, you know, established good church and it's harboring this Church of Sacrifice, which is producing all these horrible, magical, sacrificial rituals for the devil or whatnot. All right, now, come April of 1912, Clementine dropped her crazy act and began talking to the police. She claimed that she did commit the murders, or if she wasn't actually at the murder scene, she helped coordinate the murders, because, you see, she claimed to be the head priestess of the Church of Sacrifice. Maybe. There's other reports that claim she was more like an altar girl, for lack of a better term. And remember, she's like 17 at the time this is going on. Her story was that life with her father was so bad, she was looking from, for help from anyone or anywhere. And she eventually found it in the Church of Sacrifice, which was basically just a, another or a name for a hidden voodoo order. 
Now, the teachings of this group, and this is widely reported to the extent that people reported on the Church of Sacrifice, but apparently one of the main tenets of this group was that human sacrifice was considered the path to immortality. Victims were chosen at random, even from their own membership. And when I, I mean, literally, they drew lots to see who was going to be killed. Clementine said that she would dress up as a man, hop on a train, and then found the family that was the target. Or in some other accounts, she would find a random family that she thought would be easy to take down. While she was confessing to police, she took responsibility for somewhere between 17 and 20 murders and said the rest of the killings had been committed by members of her order, including her brother and her father. Now, if you're paying attention, this probably won't shock you, but the district attorney and most of the investigators described Clementine's confession as flimsy and contradictory. There's also the problems that the murders had not stopped while Clementine was in, was in custody. Apparently, some researchers, like real researchers, unlike me, who have dug into this case, have gotten a hold of the actual police files and learned that nowhere in any of the police notes is the Church of Sacrifice even mentioned. But again, the word voodoo had gotten into the community's consciousness, so the prosecution had to continue forward. Clementine was tested by a local psychiatrist to see if she was fit to stand trial. The psychiatrist's findings were essentially that Clementine was a very depraved young woman, but legally she was sane. During her trial, which began in October of 1912, she pointed the finger at a local man by the name of Joseph Thibodeau's uh, as the leader of the cult. And she claimed that he directed the killings and even provided the congregation with magical charms that would make Clementine and the other murderers invisible, both while committing the crime and generally from police detection. Obviously the charm, and by the way, no charm was ever found, but obviously this charm was not top quality stuff since, you know, Clementine's discussing this while sitting in a courtroom facing murder charges. The terrified press and public just went bananas at hearing this. But, you know, police promised that, look, we've got our eye on this order, on this cult. We've got no fewer than 50 additional suspects, and we're going to arrest them as soon as we can get Clementine found guilty. And she was ultimately found guilty and sentenced to life in prison at the tender age of 19. What makes the story live on a little bit, though, and what's really weird to some degree, is what happened to Clementine after she went to jail. First of all, while she's in a state penitentiary, two more families were killed by the end of 1912. But after 1912, there was no more. They ended. Second, and more mysteriously here, Clementine's been sentenced to life in prison. She's sitting in a prison until one day she's not. She vanished, disappeared, went poof. No one knows why she was released or who authorized it. 
those who want to believe the voodoo side of things point to this final documented event in Clementine's life as proof that she was the practitioner of these dark arts. Now, interestingly, a story about Clementine... Wait, that's not very well written. This, this is what I wrote. A story about Clementine's story. I need a thesaurus. Uh, was published online sometime in 2002. And in this random story, a commenter by the name of Voodoo Gal 11 wrote that she believed her grandmother may have actually been Clementine because this woman talked a lot about, you know, growing up poor in Louisiana. She remembered these murders and what a mess they caused for the black community at the time. Eventually, Voodoo Gal, you know, grew up a little bit and asked her grandmother for more details, and her grandmother had an answer to dang near every question she asked. Not only that, but her grandmother favored the only picture of Clementine that seems to continue to exist today, at least on the internet. However, her grandmother had died in the late 1990s at the age of 104, so we couldn't really get any more details from her. But this would have been fairly close to what Clementine's age would have been if she was still alive, as Voodoo Gal 11 claims. So very mysterious. Let's, let's talk a little bit more about this. I'm going to try my best to put this one together and pull out the parts that don't seem to fit very well. You know, first... We got to acknowledge the victims. These were horrific crimes and, you know, the victims and their families were given no press. That's not what was interesting back in the day. It was, you know, how gruesome the murders were and, and the voodoo aspect and how much can we sensationalize this. So we mentioned the Byers family, the Andrus family. In addition, there was the Hodge family, the Wexford family, the Randall family, the Warner family, and the Broussard family. There may have been others. Some of these families may not have been victims of the same series of murders, but as best I can tell, these seem to be commonly considered the, the victims of these murders. And they, you know, at a minimum, their family suffered. Now, as I've been alluding to, while there's no doubt these murders were taking place, I think there was a little hype added in an effort to sell newspapers, you know? The murder of a black family in a poor section of Louisiana in the 19-teens isn't really going to sell papers. You know, white folks at the time, that wouldn't be high on their priority list. But if you can put some spice into that story, well, you know, that's ink that'll sell right there. Uh, you know, I, I certainly am not saying that there's a question about whether or not these families were murdered. They were. And, you know, I think that alone should have gotten some good press because it does seem like we have a serial killer out here. Part of me thinks, though, that just doesn't get any traction because there's not an indication that this is a threat to white society. So if we add in these Bible verses being written in blood and a mysterious cult known as the Human Five, things get more interesting and they become much more offensive. Now, from what I can tell from, again, I'm not digging through the actual police records like real researchers. I'm 
I'm a man with a job and a family, so I can only go off of what I can find online. But from what I can tell, there was a bucket present at one crime scene and maybe one or two more. I do not think there was a bucket present in the first few murders. murders. The reports regarding the Bible verses, for me, they were far, far too inconsistently reported for me to believe that that was truly occurring. I would think if there's a crime scene where you have all this going on and Bible verses being written in blood, that is not an aspect the papers would forget to include. So because it's so sporadically reported, I don't buy into that aspect of the story. I will, of course, admit right here, right now, I don't know anything about voodoo. I'm not an expert. Um, I don't know much about it, but from a quick trip through the internet, I kind of get the impression that voodoo is a cultural thing. Well, you know, the Bible and Bible verses are considered a religious thing. And it seems like, from my uneducated point of view, that the two rarely mix. You know, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like, you know, both can exist in a, in a, in a region. And a person can believe in voodoo and go to Christian services, you know, read the Bible and all that. But I don't believe that a voodoo cult would have any interest in using the Bible in any of its rituals. So, you know, that's another reason why I kind of discount the idea that Bible verses were integral to whatever was being done at these murder scenes. Now, I do believe that, like we mentioned, in the later murders, the bodies were being dismembered. I never saw any reports of being the initial victim suffering this fate. So apparently, to the extent we can trust what, what I was able to find, there was some escalation in these crimes as time went on. And that's important to remember because, you know, Christine's behind bars for several of the later murders. So I don't know if she would be a free woman when the dismemberments began. Uh, and, you know, I think it would be odd for Christine to start these killings only to have a copycat killer come along and then continue the tradition, but escalate it. Now, I, it's certainly possible maybe, you know, a copycat killer would need to leave their own mark on the on the atrocities. But it just strikes me as odd. The details about the kids' fingers being spread apart seems to only appear in stories about one murder, and that's the Broussard family murder. And I don't know what significance this would hold. I looked into it a little bit, but nothing on the internet jumped out. So, you know, that's just a mystery to me. Does it have any significance in, in the voodoo culture? I don't know. Why, but the, you know, again, it, it was mentioned. It seems very odd that you would do it, but whatever. Um, we're all weird in our own way, I suppose. The idea that Christine was a member or even the high priestess of this unknown church of sacrifice, I'm going to describe as laughable. 
Um, and the key piece of evidence that destroys this theory for me is when Clementine testifies that not only was she part of it, but her daddy was too. Now remember, when she's talking to police, this is supposed to be an escape from her dad and all the ruthless beatings he gave. Why would she invite him into the circle? Or why would she stay if he was independently invited into the circle? That doesn't make a lick of sense to me. And, you know, again, with Clementine, you know, her position changing with every story from being just a member to being, you know, some sort of assistant slash altar girl, whatever, to her being the actual high priestess. Um, it's weird. And, you know, another aspect of having her dad be in the membership would mean if we accept the, this alleged organization's beliefs that human sacrifice is the path to immortality, why on earth would Clementine do anything to help her father gain immortality? Um, you know, it, it's this is a dude of... of of legendary violence from the rumors that surround him. This doesn't pass the smell test to me, you know, with what's at stake in this supposed effort. Why, why, why would you want your worst enemy to be rewarded just as you are? Why would you want him to be able to roam the earth as long as you are roaming the earth? Um, and, you know, I, I'm, I don't have any reports I can point to for this, but just the way everything describes and the, you know, it's just got that tone that not only was Clementine physically abused, she was likely sexually abused by her father as well. So why help this man? That's the devil in your life. I don't know. So again, I just have a hard time with that. Um, additionally, I don't know if there was a church of sacrifice at all. Sure, it would be easy to cover up during these times, but the only time you can find this church mentioned in any reports or any bit of research, again, online, is in connection with this case, the stories that are told about this case. And as I mentioned, real researchers, when they did real research and went through the files, there's no mention of this church. Really, the only other time you can find a reference to the Church of Sacrifice is reading some video game reviews. Apparently, it's been adopted for use in certain horror games. So, I kind of think this idea that there was this voodoo church operating in Louisiana and committing these mass murders, you know, it's just media sensationalism. I also don't know what the Human Five are. They allegedly signed the one wall in human blood in the one murder. Um, you know, they're painted in the newspapers from that time as like, you know, the elite part of the Church of Sacrifice. But if the church doesn't exist, what are the odds that the Human Five is a real thing? And again, it's not something that's otherwise referenced. I would carve the story down to this. 
a series of murders were occurring in Louisiana and East Texas. Raymond gets on the police radar and is questioned. Clementine and Zephyrin saw this as a chance to be rid of the curse of their father, so they point the finger at him. The murders continue while Raymond's in custody. At this point, one of two things happened. Clementine went out and committed a murder to keep her father under suspicion, or she thought that her daddy, with her daddy in custody, she could kill without much fear of being caught. Now, I admit this is a huge leap that she would take to killing, but I can't explain the dress that police found. Um, when you couple this with the fact that I think there is some evidence, enough for me to believe that Clementine was not mentally well, it offers an explanation, but I am quick to admit that this is the weakest part of my theory. I just can't overlook that dress. And, you know, this is a time we don't talk about mental health. There's not really mental health services. If a young black girl is basically being tortured by her daddy, that's going to have some adverse consequences to her mental health. So her doing crazy things, and I, I mean, I, I know that isn't the right term, but that's what I'm using here. Her going out and doing crazy things after suffering through all this wouldn't shock me, I guess. I don't know the right way to phrase that. It, it also would help explain why Clementine confessed to murders. Um, you know, and, and you got to keep in mind, too, that by the time the press and others had made up their mind that voodoo was in play, there was no chance of having a normal police investigation. But there's no evidence of voodoo at play here. As to why the murderers kept coming while most of the Barnabet family was in jail, I think there's a good chance there's probably an actual serial killer working in the area. And I actually have some evidence to bolster that. Uh, there's an author by the name of Bill James who wrote a book entitled The Man from the Train, which follows the activities of a man who may have been named Paul Mueller, who is believed to have killed somewhere between 59 and 100 people, whose M.O. matches these murders very well. Uh, he traveled across the U.S. by train, killing families or individuals that live close to the tracks, and seemed to prefer using the blunt end of an axe for many of these murders. Now, because he would commit a murder, hop on a train, and be 30 or 40 miles away by the time the crime scene was discovered, he was never really a suspect because he's not in town. Police would look to the local ne'er-do-wells, right? Now, Bill James' research indicated that Mueller's travels likely took him through Louisiana and Texas in the early 1910s the same time frame that these murders occurred. And I like this theory that James puts forth, and I believe it may be the truth behind this murder spree that Clementine is accused of. The one 
wrinkle in it is, as you probably noticed, James can't specifically identify who this was and thinks it may be a man named Paul Mueller. And so there's a lot of question marks about who was behind this. And if you don't know the who, it's hard to answer the why. Which, you know, of course, makes the whole thing kind of built on a shaky foundation. But that seems like a reasonable possibility or reasonable explanation for what really happened here. Now, I do want to talk a touch about the disappearance of Clementine before we conclude this. According to reports, after she had been in prison for a year, she did try to escape, but she was captured. This was literally shortly after she had been booked into the prison. Now, she officially disappeared in 1923, so she wasn't there very long. But there were reports that came out that in 1922-ish, she underwent a medical procedure that allegedly cured her of her problems. We don't know what that procedure was, and we don't know how it changed her. Now, knee-jerk reaction is going to be, well, she had a lobotomy. But apparently lobotomies were not really utilized in the United States at this time. It would be another like eight to ten years before most doctors started doing this. Again, for all we know, maybe Clementine was one of the first that they experimented on, or they did some other form of quote-unquote therapy, and they believed it fixed her. Her being in a prison uh, at this time, if you remember from several of our other episodes where folks are going to jail in the late 1800s, early 1900s, Prisons were not very sophisticated. They didn't have all their ducks in a row when it came to keeping people from escaping. Uh, So, you know, since there's fewer obstacles in the way of obtaining freedom, I think it's entirely possible that she would have a chance to escape, especially if, you know, the staff is saying, hey, she underwent this procedure She's a different person now. She's a better person now. We don't really need to keep an eye on her like we thought we would. I think, I mean, that kind of suggests that she was ignored, which I don't think is correct. And it kind of also implicitly suggests that nobody cared if she escaped, which I don't think is likely. But, you know, How much were prison, you know, corrections officers or their precursors being paid at this time? Would they really want to go chase somebody down out in the Louisiana swamp, especially when they're being told by their superiors that she's not a danger anymore? So that's kind of my overview of this tale. Um, I don't buy into the voodoo magic going on at all. There's a rational and a reasonable explanation here. I have no doubt there about it maybe i have accidentally drunkenly stumbled close to it maybe mr james figured it out in his book i don't know but i'm much more likely to believe something like what james offered up versus you know voodoos and invisibility charms and things like that um you know that this was this was 
this was honestly a taxing one to work my way through. Uh, there's just not a lot of the sources you find just repeat the same story. And so, and, and you're not going to find newspaper archives going back that far generally. Um, or at least I'm not able to, maybe there's paid ways you can do it, but I'm not a fool. So, you know, this, this one was a challenge, but I, you know, I think it's an interesting story and I, you know, any murders that have this layer of mystery, I always enjoy, and I get feedback suggesting that y'all get a kick out of them, too. So I'm glad we covered it. But uh, let's get on to the palate cleanser, shall we? I'm doing another football one because we've got the NFL season starting this week, or the week that this is being released. Plus, I just really like football. So um, here we go. What do you call a mass gathering of Raiders fans? This one's easy. What do you call a mass gathering of Raiders fans? It It's a prison. <laughs> and I say that with love for the Raiders. I like the Raiders, but I can't argue with that. So that puts another story in the books. It kind of feels good, doesn't it? Another one, another one we can add to the list. If you enjoyed this episode, please, please leave us a good five-star rating, a kind review, Share us with your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, even your social media followers. If you're a member of any true crime fan groups, maybe toss old Killing Missing Hidden's name out there for folks to gobble up. Like I said, we're, we've kind of shut down our, our swag store, so if there's any KMH merch you want, just email me, info at kmhpodcast.com. And I will take care of you. All right. Well, happy September. I hope you have an awesome month and that you join us again next week. We would love to have you. In fact, I would dare say we would miss you if you weren't there. But until then, all I can say, as usual, is Brad out. You survived another episode of Killing Missing Hidden, the podcast about bad things. Join us next time for another true and thrilling story.